0: I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now, and I'm super psyched to be here or be somewhere with Chris Robinson and Rich Robinson of the Black Crows. There is a big anniversary box set coming out of their debut, Shake Your Money Maker, and we're going to talk about that and the origins of the band and all sorts of stuff, and thanks for uh, joining me, guys. Thanks for having us in in virtual reality land. (laughs) Exactly. So how have your uh, quarantines been going? And and have you, uh, are you in each other's bubbles or have you been completely, have you seen each other physically since this all started?
1: No, we're, we're in separate parts of the country.
0: I think it's
2: been horrible for everyone. I mean, but like I've said, I've had incredible moments and, you know, a lot of deep moments. I say thank goodness for that my wife camille is uh, is as amazing as she is, but overall it's been it's horrible it's horrible to to uh, you know I was saying the other day like just the not just even playing music, just going to see music is such a big part of our lives, you know my life since I was old enough to sneak into the six eighty eight club to see the replacements on the Let it Be tour you know with my first fake i d so it hurts not to be doing it. It hurts not to be
0: being a part of it. You know, you would have been obviously on tour right now. Do you feel the the loss of that tour specifically? Do you do you kind of feel the absence of what you're supposed to be doing right now?
2: Yeah, most definitely. You know, I mean, not even what I, we're supposed to be doing. Something that that's just part of who we are at this point. You know, after 30 years of of living on the road, you know. If you don't like it, if you don't take to it, then it's not going to be the same experience. And, you know, no matter how jaded or <clears throat> no matter how you could look around or, you know, when you're being negative, there's so much adventure still in travel and in playing music and in, you know, you never know what freaky person you're going to meet when you're like on the right when everything comes together. and I miss, yeah, I definitely miss that, you know. I miss singing. I mean, you know, I like to sing. Singing, it makes my
0: body feel good, you know. Rich, have you been playing at home or have you been keeping up?
1: Yeah, I have a studio. You know, Chris and I have been writing songs. Oh, wow. Yeah, you know, we've been doing a lot from that standpoint. But, you know, uh, it's definitely surreal, but it's also, you know, just to kind of put a more, like, a positive spin on it for me is to be able to take time to sort of look at humanity and look at maybe how we can shift moving forward. Dolphins coming back into the canals of Venice and air being slightly more breathable. There's some silver lining in that, I guess. And maybe people get to look at themselves a little bit deeper and try to figure out maybe what wasn't that cool before and how to move forward in the future, you know?
0: Tell me about the songwriting sessions. How is that? Is that a, like a zoom thing or are you just sending files back and forth? How is that working?
1: Yeah, just sending files back and forth. You know, I'll, I'll come up with something and put it down and send it to Chris and see if he likes it. And then he'll throw some lyrics on it and we'll kind of go back and forth. We've been working with George Draculius as well. Wow. Um, so it's been great, you know, it's been really cool. It is almost like a start over the last time Chris and I didn't tour most of the, of a year was when we were writing Shake Your Money Maker (laughs) you know what I mean I mean just you didn't tour like that when we were kids and also I was a teenager so it's cool to have this time and to really do something with it and that's that's been good for me as well
0: do you expect to put out an album like next year or something is it that concrete or I don't think
2: yeah I don't think you know what I mean I think our main focus and you know again the the part that has made the you know, Rich and I getting back together, I mean, part of the of course, the one thing we never did or think about, the genius part of it was to really focus on Shake Your Moneymaker, like you know what I mean? I, I mean, the second we make a record like Shake Your Money Maker, the type of people we were, are still the type of people we are, we were like, what's next? You know, I mean, there's a decided musical difference between our first records, between all our records, for better or for worse, as you look back on them, we were never a, a formulaic band. And so I, I think, you know, for the very first time, we can look back at something and it, we can... Uh, You know, I liked the idea of that, you know, when we got in the room and we're put, you know, after spending all those years playing expansive set lists and different stuff all the time, to focus on something, to me that added a respect to it because when that record is all about focus, you know, when you have your first batch of sort of, I don't know, maybe I'll describe them as like, those were our first grown-up songs, (laughs) you know, in a way. Uh, we had left a sort of a certain sophomoric or adolescent element behind, you know, in the focus and seriousness. So to get back to that is kind of where, again, like, you know, Rich and I, all right, so the tour's over, we're super bummed, and then Rich just, like, you know, starts, what we've always done is write songs together. So Rich starts sending me songs, and they contain the seeds of a lot of that focus and the seeds of a lot of the music that we started from, you know, which, uh, yeah, to me is super exciting and dynamic. You know, one thing about listening to music and, you know, when we decided to do this, I was like, wow, I'm, underneath whatever I am, I love rock and roll, you know what I mean? I really love rock and roll. And that's kind of like, wow, we have the opportunity before we're way too old to make something with some teeth in it, you know what I mean? Like something that harkens back to where we started with that attitude, with the punk rock sort of place that we come from and that indie rock sort of edge that we had when we started. I mean, our music veered off into Roots music being the inspiration, you know, and that manifests itself in
0: like, you know, our interest in English things like the stones and the faces and you know what I mean? Absolutely. Well, let's, to go back to the beginning means whenever it's a, a band that's family, it means really <laughs> going back to the beginning. In your case, I've always been fascinated by the fact that your dad had something of a, like a rock and roll song himself. I've, I've heard it. It's uh, it's called, I think "Booma uh, boom, a dip dip. And how much did the existence of that career of your dad, obviously went on to do other things. It wasn't a lifelong thing, but how much did that lurking in the background in your family history affect your future path? I mean,
2: I think for me the cool part about it was the availability of music because after our dad's uh, rock and bebop, rock and roll career, he, he moves back to the south and he's really immersed in, the, in folk music and was signed to ABC Paramount with a folk duo called the Appalachians. So I, you know, I see it as, like I said, dad getting out the guitar and playing all these old folk songs and part of his repertoire and, you know, early memories of, you know, when he was still in the folk scene a little bit going to hoot nannies, And it's the first time I remember seeing a pedal steel and people playing banjo and singing. And to me, that was the, more so than like dreaming of being in the lights or my name on a, you know. Uh, facade or whatever it was about the availability of and the expression and dad was a good he explained that a lot of these songs came from england and when they get mixed with african culture blah blah you know what i mean to be able to put together a lot of things like that also made my uh it really just fueled my imagination and my love you know
0: yeah i think Rich, you said that you, you got a guitar for Christmas when you were 15. Did your dad give you lessons? Did you get lessons some, from somewhere else? Did you just teach? How did that? Because it seems to have kicked in really fast. You guys were writing songs like right away as soon as you started playing.
1: Yeah, our dad didn't have a lot of patience to, t- to teach. <laughs> so he's like, here's what I'm going to show you. Here's three chords, GCD, figure the rest <laughs> out yourself. And that was it, you know. Uh, he showed me how to do harmonics and then and then those three chords and that was about it. And then I taught myself, which is kind of just how I I did it. Um, But with that basic, you know, you can write a song with GC and D and immediately Chris and I jumped in and started writing songs. I had messed around with his guitars, which are actual nice instruments. And I think the reason he bought us guitars was so we would leave his nice instruments alone. But he was very supportive and cool about it and we got these guitars and Chris got a bass and we got one amp and we shared it we both plugged into two different channels (laughs) in a pv bass amp and just rocked out instantly you know
2: we learned uh we learned goo goo muck and then that was it you know what I mean it was like
0: And Chris, to what extent did that voice just come out of you versus kind of honing it and finding a vocal style and listening to Steve Marriott and all sorts of things? And how, how did that work for you?
2: Of course, with me and my dyslexic uh, you know, life, it was kind of backwards, you know. My experience with dad was more he, he didn't really think I was a very could was a good singer. And <laughs> you know, we were punk kids who you know i've, I've told the story but rem comes along and it's like now we can put the you know because we like bob dylan we love the birds in the buffalo springfield and you know where does this music fit in with this modern music Oh, well, there's rem so they're doing something that's not just in the hardcore scene but the one thing that would have been lacking at that time as an influence even though we listened to it I would have been very wary of allowing any sort of black musical influences in, in my sound as a singer. Being from Atlanta, I just would be like, oh, I don't I don't want to perpetrate, you know, that's what they'd say in Atlanta. Hmm. But as our sound developed and we just life, you know, we got our sound got harder and I started to sing different. Then people that would see us, I mean, first it was like, oh, the They're like the Small Faces or something, and I'm like, oh, I don't even know who the singer of that band is at the time, even though I've heard of the Small Faces. Then someone's like, oh, that's Steve Marriott. You sound like him, or you sound like Lowell George, or you sound like uh, Terry Reid or whatever, you know, all the cool singers. I didn't really know that stuff, you know, the, the classic rock kind of... So, you know, when I put on a Humble Pie record. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, I sound, I could sound like that. Rod Stewart in the Faces, huge. To, you know, the first time George DeCulius, you know, I played him, Grievous Angel. He had never heard that record and he played, uh, he played me, you know, Miss Judy's Farm and it was like a ton of bricks moment. You know what I mean? Like, oh wow, this is cool. You know what I mean? This has all the things and it was so different. You know what I mean? I know to older people they had probably and the faces really weren't that big in America, except for Stay With Me and stuff. So it was more just experimenting, you know? I grew up so hardcore listening to V-103 FM in Atlanta, Parliament Funkadelic, Sly of Family Stone, you know, all that music. And it wasn't until the rock and roll times where we started to allow, at least me as a vocalist, some of that into what I was doing.
0: Was your hesitancy to uh, draw from black music a uh, fear of being of like appropriating of stealing was that the was that the there ambient? was
2: a, there was part of that was that yeah. and i felt that a lot of white artists of that did that i felt that it would be contrived as well unless it was something really organic something very natural but still dynamic and then but again you know rich would say the same thing a lot of our it's not till I get out in the world, even later as well, where I realize, oh man, it's f- soul, is, soul is soul, pain is pain, and you <laughs> joy is joy, and to find to as a you know singing to me is, a, is you know it's a weird thing to be a singer. I mean, the main reason I love Otis Redding so much, and he's still my favorite soul singer, is you know he's flat here, he's sharp there. It's super you know, rhythmic and just raw, you know, and that also fit into all the things that I like about the true expression that we felt rock and roll should be.
0: Rich, when uh, in the Mr. Crow's Garden days, you were still in high school and gigging and and everything. What what was that like? And how much of were you completely mentally checked out of high school? Were you sure that this was that the band was your life or were you kind of balancing it? How How did that work for you?
1: I was pretty checked out. <laughs> I I did not care for school that much. I wasn't too in- I wasn't too interested in it. You know, I mean, it was normal to me because I'd finish school and then after school drive to Soundcheck or whatever, you know, wherever we may be playing at the time. When I was in my later high school years and I could actually drive. Um before that I was, you know, f- we were playing clubs and I was 15. And you know, Chris would have to pick me up or we would have to drive or whatever. But yeah, I was definitely checked out. But I, I you know, I never I never made some sort of declaration that this is what I was gonna do with the rest of my life. I just we just did it. You know what I mean? It's, it was just kind of a given. We this is where I wanted to go, this is what was interesting to me, this is how we did it, and we we moved forward, you know?
0: Now obviously your use of open tunings, needless to say, became key to the band's sound. Uh, And my understanding was that uh, George Draculius pushed you in that direction. At the same time, I also, I believe that you wrote uh, She Talks to Angels, which is in uh, like an open E, before you ever met him. So how did that all kind of...
1: I I got into open tunings before I met George. uh, And and I got into them through Nick Drake, you know, like listening to Nick Drake. And then later, when I understood more about them, thinking about Stephen Stills, you know, and dad gad and you know the tunings that he would play but also Nick and and how when I first heard uh the first Nick Drake song I heard was was fly on time and no reply there was just something tonally about the whole thing and the way it hit me it hit me like Marlon Brando with the diamond bullet (laughs) right (laughs) you know it moved me on a on a really profound level and the more I delved into him, to Nick, and what he was doing, and his, those tunings were crazy and how they sounded. And when he would strum these guitars and the suspended sort of notion of, you know, with an open tuning, you can change one finger or two fingers a, and it changes the whole chord. It, it, it really fascinated me. And so the first open tuning I learned was open E. And one of the f- earlier things I was messing around with was She Talks Angels which that song is an open E. And then later, you know, I, I started delving into more and understanding it more and getting a little bit deeper.
0: Chris, do you remember first hearing that bit of instrumental music and, and starting to write a melody or words to it?
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think I was probably out of the house by then, but I would still be at our parents' house. I mean, we wrote that song at mom and dad's house. I mean, I'm still kind of this, well, I don't know, my method has changed a lot, but I mean, for the most part, when Rich sends me something that I really, that hits me, I instantly start, you know what I mean? I instantly start to find a melody. You know, it's very, I instantly start to, his music, The whatever tonality, whatever the tension, whatever the release, whether it's something that might have a, you know, a drop of anger or a whiff of melancholy. Those are the things that'll start to dictate with me. When you're young and the, you know, Bob Dylan always talks about the process was new, I would just be blah, 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 you know what I mean? It'd be the same thing. Rich would play me something I would say, play that twice, (laughs) play that again. And it would be very easy. You know, I don't think there's very many drafts of She Talks to Angels. I'm pretty sure we probably walked away After an hour or two hours of work on it with the song that that we had later I mean the thing about that song if I remember and Rich if I'm wrong, please Point it out if I remember about she talks to angels was you know We didn't even probably play it for George because we felt it was kind of different than the kind of blues Rock thing we were going for you know, like maybe I don't remember like George hearing it the very first time and going Oh, my God, you know what I'm saying? But I, I do know that Rich and I, at an age where there was a lot of superficial rock balladry going on, to say the least, which I, I, you know, I get it. There's like nostalgia and, you know, everyone wanted to hear the hair metal bands and rock bands have like a a ballady song. You know, we felt that the ballad had been cheapened in a, in a way, you know, like when you think about the kind of emotional component Wild Horses has or, and our obsession with Alex Chilton and Graham Parsons you know would and I think <clears throat> through the entire career of the Black Crows and the songs the hundreds of songs Rich and I have written our ballads are the most poignant ones you know they're the ones with the the richest imagery and I think the most delicate melody you know what I mean which uh, would be inherent to a, a great ballad but I think that it's we've always we always like the opportunity to exercise that kind of sadness in a way you know
0: so you know at some point you lose your drummer you get Steve Gorman in Steve at that point you know could barely play a fill but he was he was very solid with a beat when you had you know you had an open slot you could have you had your, you know, I don't know if you had your pick of drummers, but you could have selected a drummer. What was it that appealed to you about someone like him at that point?
2: Well, it is funny because Jeff Sullivan, who was our drummer, was like considered one of the best drummers in Atlanta. That's why, you know, Driving and Crying, you know, took him. I mean, we weren't really attracting the best musicians. You know what I mean? Like, everything in Atlanta in that mid-late 80s is so competitive and kind of gangish. you know, like, and... We really hadn't, I would hardly say we were realized, you know, I mean, the reason Steve joins the band is because at the same time our original Jeff Sullivan joins Driving and Crying, we have a demo deal with A&M Records where they're sending us up to North Carolina to work with this producer on some songs, you know, as a developmental sort of thing. And we needed a drummer and Steve... And I shared a room at this band house where he was in a band called Marry My Hope, which ended up signing to Beggar's Banquet. But because, you know, A and M Records was paying for it, I think Steve was definitely savvy enough to,
0: you know, well I'm gonna go with these guys. There's some cool stuff, uh, cool outtakes on this box set. I think there's some stuff you left off that's out there in bootleg. Like there's a song called Servin' Time. I don't think you put that one out. That's a good one. How did you kind of decide what to <laughs> what to leave in the Ashpen the of History and what to kind of revive on this one?
2: Servin' Time,
0: what's that one? Do you remember that?
1: Yeah, Servin' Time. That was from diff- like an earlier session. That was pre-Shake Your Money Maker.
2: So that, so. Okay,
0: so in your mind, that doesn't count as part no. of this? Is the thing. Gotcha, gotcha, yeah. gotcha.
2: That would be leading up to, like, you know, we meet George Tercoulias, and he's the one who, you know, starts emphasizing the the, the, the you know, working on the songs. Okay, that's good, but go back. It could be better. Pretty good. Keep going. Getting better. <laughs> you know, keep doing it. Rewrite, you know what I mean? And it happens pretty quickly. You know what I mean? It the, it, it happens in about a 12-month period we go from serving time to jealous again. You know, again, this was before the time of like talent shows and vote for me. Oh my God, vote for him. He's great. You know, this was like, you want to be in a band? Fuck you. Everyone wants to be in a band. You're never going to, you know what I mean? There was no positive vibes around the decision to be what a lot of people thought was a loser. You know what I mean? You're never going to make it. You live in Atlanta. You're you're not talented. You're no, You know. I always used to say Atlanta was the city that told us no. <laughs> you know, which was great motivating uh, factor in the in,
0: in our work ethic and our passion. You know, George kind of told you that you. you I, I believe he told you that you kind of sucked. That you had potential, but you kind of sucked when you when you and first. George. Arrived.
2: Yeah yeah, 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 pretty much. Yeah, He liked our cover tunes. When he saw us for the first time, we played Down in the Street by the Stooges, and we played No More No More by Aerosmith in the same set, and then with our songs in between. And he, he was like, but I could see how you guys could, you know what I mean? He was the one who said, you got to take it serious. Everyone wants to write some songs. You got to really start writing songs, you know? Again, I think that would also be the thing that is probably maybe the only one of the, the main reasons that we've had a, a career that's lasted so long. You know what I mean? If our if our attention had been to the showbiz or the flash or this or listening to the record this or that, you know what I mean? I think Rich and I always knew there was great value in, in the, the songwriting will keep us going no matter what's cool out there. Or, you know what I mean? By the time fucking grunge is over. It's like Limp biscuit or whatever. You know, they're playing on the radio. They're not playing our records, but people are
0: listening to our records. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, did George, to a certain extent, obviously that there's nothing more overblown than the comparison to the Stones, but did George kind of send you, as part of the many bands he'd send you back to listen to closely, where the Stones were one of them? right i mean that you know i I mean we it it can now be said right
2: (laughs) yeah yeah no i mean i i had found my way into the rolling stones through exile main street through graham our fascination with graham parsons so again like a lot of these things are happening at the same time like that's when i just happened to meet george you know what i mean when like exile main street becomes a part of our things that we're into you know, I mean, he's the one who's definitely, you know, like I said, when it comes to things like the Faces and, I mean, George is playing me those records and even the early Rod Stewart solo records and stuff,
0: the ones the Faces play on and the ones they don't. I love, we, I love, by the way, that you called out uh, at the time that the rep- you spotted the Faces influence on, on the Replacements, which a lot of people did not. That, oh, that yeah, was, yeah, yeah. You know, obviously. But uh, Rich, I want, since you, you, I think you were the one who went through a lot of the vaults what did you learn or kind of get reminded of as far as your evolution towards the songs on Shaker Money Maker?
1: You know, we were talking about it a little bit earlier, how Jealous Again really was that one song that really came together for us. When we brought it to the band and Played it a couple of times everyone was looking around like, wow, this is, this is a new sort of step for us, you know? And I feel like that really took us, that was the impetus that took us to where we needed to be, you know? That was a good standard of where, okay, this is kind of a good stepping stone to start making Shake Your Money Maker.
2: Like when we have, when we have 12 songs as good as, th- that we think are this good. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like. Because you've never made records before. You've never been in a real studio and microphone. And, you know, back then, you know, Pro Tools, you let a lot of shit slide. You know, when you're making records in the olden times on tape, it's a lot of takes when you're you haven't been. We haven't been doing it very long. You know, yeah.
0: now uh, there's a uh, stone song called uh, Crazy Mama. <laughs> compared to Jealous Again. I have to say, I think Jealous Again is a better song than Crazy <laughs> Mama. But there is, there, I, 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 maybe, that's, maybe that's offensive to some a, people, but I genuinely It has a better, has a better chorus. So. Yeah, yeah, you know? Were things like that a direct influence? Or is I there, mean, it?
2: Jealous Again, If you when you go back, I'm, Jealous Again is way more uh, Don't Take It So Hard, the first Keith Richards single from Talk mm. Is Cheap. You know what I mean? So we are really into that at the time, too, you know.
1: But also, you know, like listening to all the old, the vault, like going through the vault, listening to everything. There's a lot of ACDC on that record, too. Yeah.
2: There really is.
1: The way that we we handled rhythm guitar, it wasn't until Mark Ford came in that we sort of approached the two guitar thing as more like, you know, Keith and Mick, Taylor. Uh, On Shake Your Money Maker, there's a lot of us playing the same parts over and over again, or, you know, really reinforcing each other's parts. There wasn't a lot of guitar interplay. And we were huge ACDC fans, too. That's
0: interesting. There weren't a lot of bands back then, or since, that were in that not just rock, not just hard rock, but rock and roll vein that you were trying to do. It's an interesting thing. I, I think that you were looking for places. One of the, I think one of the bands that you mentioned that, that had a little bit of it was Guns N' Roses. I, I think at the time. Which I mean, I think,
2: I think Guns N' Roses had a lot of it. You know, I think they had the, <clears throat> the other things, but I, I think their universal appeal was always at their base. They weren't a metal band. They weren't a, gla- you know, they were. They had a rock and roll vibration inside of whatever that was is the strength of what why that band was so
0: popular and still so popular is it is it true that you once reached out to izzy stradlin after he left gnr about possibly joining the black crows is there any truth to that i don't think so no
1: i was
2: we were friends with i mean rich is rich is friends with izzy so he would know i don't i don't remember that no
1: i mean izzy was when he was done he was done with all of that you know uh, but, but he was always a friend of ours. We did We tried to get the Juju hounds to open for us on Southern Harmony.
0: I think that's one of those things people want to be true they 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 want <laughs> <laughs> it it, it would have worked so well that people want, people want to, although you know he's not a lead guy, so it might have been a little redundant, actually. It might have been weird. But what else surprised you, rich in the in the vaults? whether some of these specific songs are just moments or even you know I don't know if you went through the. Obviously, you went through different takes because you have a hard to handle with the horns. What, what really kind of doc?
1: Well, I mean, like you know, period? charming mess. Like songs that we hadn't heard. That we, I, you know, I'd totally. I was like, oh, I totally forgot about that. <laughs> things that a being surprised that we they kept so many things. You know, you never know. There was there was supposedly a fire in the vaults at one of. Universal's vaults and we didn't know if we lost anything. So that was kind of interesting to figure out that we didn't but secondly hearing like the stuff from uh, center stage the live record that we did and you know a lot of the b-sides that really we just totally forgot about including hard to handle with the horns and you know There's some cool stuff with She Talks Angels and Chuck Lavelle, you know an acoustic version of Jealousy again I mean there was some cool stuff in there
0: Waiting Guilty is, uh, is a great Black Crow song. It was a B side, but it, 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 it's as good as it, it should have been on the album, honestly.
2: <laughs> I mean, you know, like I said, it's, you know, the, the other like, reality of our lives at the time was that, you know, we really didn't have a say. You know what I mean, like uh, George was the, I'm not saying, I'm saying it in the best way, you know, but George was the producer, you know, he was the one who said yes, no, this is what this is. So we, you know what I mean, we did our best and, you know, I kind of liked that, you know, looking back, like why, at the time I would probably be like, you know, fuck you, man, you know, I don't want that snare sound or whatever, like. He'd be like, you don't really get a say, you know, like, but that's how it should have been. I mean, it couldn't be any other way, you know what I mean? Like in terms of how the rock and roll worked in in the summer of 1989.
1: And we didn't have a manager. We just, we literally had George, you know what I mean? Like George was it. And he was like, Hey, Hey, little buddy, settle down. This is how this is going to be, you know? And he taught us a tremendous amount of it, you the, know. Best,
2: the best story was we felt George was dragging his feet signing us. So we had a friend book us, at C, we played CBGB's like on a Tuesday night or whatever in New York. But George was living in the village and he said, come up early and hang out. You guys could sleep on the floor. And we're, I mean Rich wasn't, but we're, the rest of us were fucking maniacs, you know. So we get up there and we party for a week and the last thing in the world we're thinking of is this gig. But we had, you know, there were five or six labels coming down that night to see us, and the A&R people, and we we were fucking horrible. I mean, we were horrible, you know what I mean? Like, one of the worst gigs ever, like, and, you know, so we were, because our whole thing was, guess what, George, if someone brings a better deal to the table, we're going with them, you know what I mean? But he just had to sit there and, like, you, you know, just laugh, you know? Like, no one is going to sign this band after that fucking show, you know what I mean? Like, so, again, George would be like, this is what's going to happen, buddy, you know?
0: Now, you had some initial reluctance to record Hard to Handle, as much as you love, It's it just it wasn't necessarily what you wanted to be doing, at first, at least.
2: No, no, no. I mean, I brought the song to the band. I thought it would be cool. I mean, now it's a very well-known song. It was a B-side originally, and, and, and even at the time of our recording it, uh, like the Grateful Dead hadn't fucking played it in a long time, and we were not in that world, you know what I mean? So, I mean, to me, I don't know if we felt it was going to turn into the kind of iconic thing that it turned into, but again, George's genius was taking a, way, a, right? a, a yeah. swinging R&B song with a fucking hot horn section. And turning it into Walk This Way a little bit, you know, with the guitar riffs and, you know, the vocal breaks are the thing that will always be, you know, that chorus is just, it's just catchy. You know what I mean? And I think it went from something that maybe, obviously we were focused on our compositions, but then it just was, you know, it was just one of those things that just came together.
0: It doesn't work with the horns. I don't know what you think, Rich, but it, to me, I mean it does it doesn't. It wouldn't have been a hit with your version with with horns. We're, no.
1: It takes away. I mean, that's why we chose not to put it on the record, you know.
0: But
2: I think the reason that that is is a rhythmic thing. Horns sound better when something swings, and that song rocks. It doesn't swing at all. It's a it's a you know, it's a very strict meter, and the horns, you know, horns are vocals kind of, so they they kind of like to exist in this uh, in the swing world, where there's more rhythmic space for them, you know.
0: So you go out. Uh, there's a, a bunch of tours. You, you tour with Aerosmith, and that was apparently like a huge bummer. Uh, or at least so I've he- so I've heard.
2: No, I was
0: amazed. I thought it oh, was rad. Wasn't that where you guys ended up calling them out for using uh, prepared backing vocals and all that stuff? What was that? Yeah, that? I,
2: I don't know. I wouldn't say we really called them out. I, you know, because Robert Plant was in that fucking quote too which he told me later like he was like i fucking wanted to kill you <laughs> but you know what that was that was not understanding that people would be paying attention to us and i was doing an interview and i and, and it was my naivete you know what i mean i I was the pay no attention to the man behind the green curtain you know i'm like Ugh! and and you know at the time that to me legendary, talented people like that would be doing something like pressing a button for a vocal to pop in and out. I didn't know about showbiz shit. You know what I mean? I'm still a fucking punk rock dude into rock and roll or whatever. So I naively brought it up. You know what I mean? I, was, I wasn't I was calling them out. I was just like, can you believe it? You know what I mean? Then it was like, you know, Steven and Robert Planner, like, what's wrong with you? Shut up. What?
0: <laughs> I mean... Rich, you were, you were sober, I believe, at that time, and everyone else in the band was partying. I think Chris may have been sometimes kind of pissed off or, or, or depressed sometimes, I don't know, from various accounts. Like, What was it, what was it like for you as, as the sober guy watching everyone else go crazy? That, that can't have been great, but at the same time, it gave you a lot of perspective.
1: It was entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> there was a There was an entertainment factor there um I mean, I had my own stuff to deal with, you know uh, my obsessive compulsive and you know my sort of issues I had to deal with that kind of kept me away from all of that because I was already dealing with my own sort of trippy world, so to speak, and so you know, I was trying to just get through a day, you know, so there was a lot of fun going around let's just say that um but it was you know it was interesting i used to watch and 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 sort of see how the whole thing unfolded and I, and i thought it was literally i thought it was really interesting it was an amazing case study <laughs> you know
0: chris did your sort of choice of intake start to switch from like alcohol to weed around that tour was that or was it both or what, where what was your no, kind of i part mean of i
2: i st- i started smoking weed later than most people um we were you know <laughs> We were always boozers, you know, like, but I think for me as well, it wasn't even though I've always struggled with depression and it definitely would manifest itself in more self-destructive ways when I was younger. To me, there was a real, you know, my, my trip was coming from like a beatnik inspired, like madness, you know, um, it was like a jazz age <laughs> you know at that era, Shake your Moneymaker, we still didn't have enough money for drugs unless people gave us drugs, you know, and then when we started making money, of course i was I was about freedom as well, you know the freedom to you know rock and roll to me was an outlaw culture rock and roll to me was a disorienting my senses and seeking my bliss um you know, when I started taking psychedelics, I don't really care about that that seemed passe at the time. You know what I mean? Like, I was, um, I was always searching for more the marrow of the bone, you know what I mean? I mean, granted, as you get later in our careers, well, the, the first 10 years is the, really the extremes of any of that. You know, the whole thing is so... Uh, The whole thing was so crazy you know it's funny you bring up izzy stradlin like rich and i are in los angeles before the album even comes out or maybe it had just come out and we got a call from our management that izzy invited us to his house and so rich and i get in a cab and we go up to laurel canyon and you know we go to izzy's house and uh i always thought it was cool he was listening to like between the buttons or some cool stones record or something and but he was like, man, you know, it's really gonna happen for you guys. You have to be prepared. It's like a rocket ship. And we we're Rich and I are like, yeah, all right, whatever. I mean, he was absolutely right. It was a crazy uh, thing that doesn't happen anymore. You know what I mean? Like being an Instagram influencer isn't the same thing as uh, being in a band that everyone said you're you're, you're not you're nothing to being something in a very short period of time. So within, you know what I'm saying, within that sort of trajectory, yeah, I, whereas Rich, now that I'm older, and I now I understand where Rich was coming from, with like, you know, anxieties about people and his OCD world, it definitely made, you know, if I had been, if I had known more about it, I, you know, it would have been a completely different world, but we, we also were like, it's going to go away, you know what I mean? Mm. Like, who knew you'd be around for 30 years talking about this fucking record? At the time, the, the science said, you know what I mean? So we were like, get as much out of I mean, I remember the we first time we went to Amsterdam, I'm like, do everything we can do. You know what I mean? Like, we're never going to come back here. We have to have the best time ever, you know what I mean? Like, I just always thought
0: inevitably they take the golden ticket away, you know? <laughs> you know, when you're a kid, you know? Yeah, I mean, Rich, I remember I, I, saw, I first saw you guys in, I think, 93. So that would have been the next tour. And Rich, you looked like not super happy on stage. You, you looked uh, you looked kind of pissed off the whole time. Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know I if mean, that was just you being cool or what? No, what that no, was. no. I, I have a stone face. I, I get lost. I mean, you know, that music comes through me and I literally lose myself. And it's, it's literally, I feel great. I mean, I, I disappear and so I and so I unfortunately, the way that my face goes is it goes to this stone <laughs> sort of face, and people think I'm pissed all the time, but it's more I'm just like, you know i'm I'm almost meditating, and I listen to everything on stage and what everyone's doing and how that feels and the movement, and you know, I see music in shapes, you know, so I see these shapes that sort of come in front of me and watch the music sort of create the these uh these shapes that feel good to me you know it's all about flow and what's happening and so that i just i disappear and i don't think about it but i do know that people always thought i was pissed or unhappy or whatever i i literally just can't help it i lose myself
2: rich what do you mean a a
0: lifetime of people going why don't you smile? exactly.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
0: yeah. yeah well, let's, let's clear one thing up. So I, I know that um, this is jumping ahead, but so Steve said specifically just, just the Jimmy Page thing. So I know that you've disputed, Rich, that you said it's just not true that you rejected riffs from Jimmy Page and that's why the tour ended. So why, why did that whole collaboration end? Because I also saw that. I saw that at Roseland and that was fantastic, you guys with, with Jimmy Page. It was amazing. Jimmy hurt his back I mean yeah that's I mean
1: one thing I
2: think is funny about, about Steve Gorman is that he's invented a persona that he was involved in any of the decisions or that Jimmy Page would have talked to Steve about it you know what I mean like there was me and Rich and then in that case there's me and Rich and Jimmy and then there's the band and management and they get their you know what I mean like it's kind of I don't know there's a hefty dose of like his, you know for whatever whatever reason his feelings are hurt, that he needs to make up things that, even if, he, he wouldn't know if they were true or untrue because he wouldn't have been privy to that kind of stuff. You know what I mean by that? Like the way bands work and shit, you know? So, I mean, look, man, we've made some bad decisions and we've, we're all, every band that's been together for 30 years is crazy, but Rich isn't gonna not play with
0: Jimmy Page. You know what I mean? Like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Let's go back to the, the songs you're writing. So you're working with, with George again. What's that? That's amazing. What's that like? Because you were also obviously, he, you were in touch with him about this box set as well. So what's, that, what's it been like to renew that, that whole relationship? It's
1: been great. I mean, George is, you know, George is George. And it's really cool to have, to have someone whose input we both respect and trust you know and to allow ourselves to be directed again in that sense you know what i mean we've we've done uh, made a lot of crows records and our solo records and other band records at the helm and so to have to kind of give that up again and give it to george who has a brilliant ear you know he really does i mean you know he hears things what he tells me and and you know and what he tells chris i, I it's been really cool to me
2: i think you know if it was just this sort of full circle thing that was just about the tour and just about the reunion and the album, but to kind of on the you know over here on the shelf have this yet another new thing happening and for and to have George sort of be here after all this time, it really like rich said, like it's it's it would be one thing if someone was telling us something, and we and it was just to be hip or cool or relevant or something, George has great insight into what actually will make this classic and what
0: makes this really, really uh, strong composition, you know. And and finally, you know, as I said, even by 1990, you were working in kind of a lost art. You know, it was already something that was a revival, obviously. Uh, But it's now, you know, 30 years later. Do you have... What kind I mean, of hope do you I have for... Say, yeah. I don't know if
2: I would say it was a revival. I think, like, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy was a revival. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, like right, right, right. We were... I think, you know, like, to me, again, when when rock and roll becomes so many other things, you forget what the fuck rock and roll is, and then there's some in your face. I could see how... You know what I'm saying? But I think underneath it all, like, there's always... Um, there's always a pure current of like that kind of vibe, and I think we we just latched we just latched on at that time. You know what I mean?
0: I, I yeah no, I think that's true, and I think there was uh, a hardness to it. I think that's the ACDC influence and other stuff in the punk that made it not a simply a, a revival. But at the same time, you were you were reconnecting with the current. I would say, and now that current has is now down to like a drip. <laughs> I think. Uh, so I'm just curious. Finally, what what degree of hope you have? Or is it even an appropriate hope to, or even an, a, a realistic thing to think about that there might be some kind of future to that current, that there might be young bands that tap into that again and. and kind of
1: it, it's more success. of a, it's a feeling. I mean, rock and roll is more of a feeling than it is to me. There's no such thing as a genre of rock and roll music. It's the intention, and it was sincerity, and it's. And it has love and, and uh, this sort of visceral reaction from the writer and the listener and the player. You know what I mean? And so I think that th- there's always going to be a place for that. But it may, it, you know, it may not be... I mean, I think whatever your intention is, the sincerity, if it comes across, that's really what matters to me. You know, Whatever you play, no matter what kind of music it is.
2: I mean to me also it's about fucking algorithms and bullshit like that. I mean, if we were algorithms then there would be no Sid Barrett, you know what I mean? Sly Stone doesn't come along because of a fucking algorithm. You know, like human beings are we're the we're the one, you know, primate walking the land that there's someone going against the algorithm. You know, like that's what we do. You know, and I think that eventually, you know, the system changed too after Kurt Cobain, you know, even me or whatever, we were impossible people to deal with in a sense while we're making these adults and these corporations millions of dollars. Mill- tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in rock and roll by popular bands. Some of us were pains in the asses to these people. Whether it was, they could say that it was drugs or this or that, a lot of it was we didn't like you and you're not one of us. You know, it's like one of us. Goobble gobble, one of us. And I think what you see today, part of what I like about, you know, music in general and how free it is, is that you know you can go your own way. You don't have to go the corporate label route. But, you know, big labels are spending money on kids who win contests instead of taking that same money and signing fucking 15, 20 cool fucking bands that, you know what, all it takes is someone to see something they didn't know existed before. That's what we did with, you know, why would I listen to Ario Speedwagon? I just heard the fucking gun club. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> <laughs> for the right person you know like there's always a Foo Fighters fan you know what I mean it's about that you know and there, there's always going to be someone who there's going to be popular music for people and that's totally cool great musicians great showmen but then there's always going to be this other shit and then until the other shit gets to bubble up and have its fair say but usually the other shit is are the people that the Corporate people don't want to fucking deal with. You know what I mean? Like they they really closed the door for that to happen. And I think we're one of the last people one of the last rock and roll bands that we we saw how the old school worked and we kind of got to skip in the door, you know. I met, you know, the very first tour we did, Ian Hunter came to our show in New York. I met Ian Hunter, one of the best fucking rock and roll songwriters of all time. Uh, You know, Tyner came to our, Mark Tyner came to our show and, uh, not Mark, uh, in, where was it, in Detroit or whatever, um, Rob Tyner. I'm like, oh my God, Rob Tyner's standing in our dressing room because he wanted to meet a band that plays rock and roll. You know what I mean? The great Ronnie Lane in his wheelchair came to the... We weren't even in a dressing room. We were by the fucking ice machine at some fucking heavy metal bar in Austin. And Ronnie Lane is there. To, he just wants to meet us. Joe Cocker just wanted to give me a... You know what I mean? Like So we had such a cool... We might not have been on, you know, K-Rock, but you know what I mean? I got to meet Ian Hunter, so fuck it. You know what I'm
0: saying? (laughs) That's a perfect place to leave it. Uh, Rich Rich Robinson, Chris Robinson, that was fun. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, man. Stay safe out of there. You too. You too and that's our show for today thanks so much to chris and rich robinson of the black crows we'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's xm's volume channel 106 in the meantime rolling stone music now is a podcast download us as a podcast subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts maybe leave us a nice review on itunes if you can it's always appreciated but as always thanks for listening stay safe and we will definitely see you next week